question. How many of you have ever had a heart-to-heart talk with someone? You ever done that? Probably most of us. Billy, you're a great guy. And I think you're the nicest person that I know. But you're going to have to start taking a shower. You smell. Mary Jo, you're a really sweet young lady. And everybody thinks you're kind and thoughtful and wonderful. But when is the last time you brushed your teeth? (laughs) Jane. Jane, we've been dating for three and a half years. And I know you think we're going to get married. But I got to be honest with you, Jane. I'm not your Tarzan. We're not going to get married. In fact, would you mind if I dated your best friend, Debbie? (laughs) Bobby. You've asked me out four times already. Every single time I said, no, it ain't happening. We're not going out. I don't like you. You're a nice guy, but not like that. 2 Corinthians may be the most personal letter written in the entire Bible. Paul shares his heart with these people. He talks about his ups and downs, his issues, his struggles, his problems. He talks about being beaten and thrown into jail, about being stoned and left for dead. And he talks about being with the Lord in the third of heaven, whatever that means. And he shares his heart with this church like he seems to in no other letter we have in the entire New Testament. We get a little slice of that again here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul writes this. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God, Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. Paul starts out this chapter on a high note as he tells the church at Corinth to remember the promises of God. And we would do well to do the same. Think about what God has done for you and give thanks. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love for you. In that while you were yet a sinner, Jesus Christ came to this earth and he died on the cross for your sin. 
He did not wait for you to even think about attempting to get your act together. Jesus Christ looked ahead, saw you there in your sin. He said, I will die for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that amazing? Not only did Jesus bear our sin physically, but he bore our sin. He was separated, we believe, even for a time from God the Father. As he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ did that for you so that you could live with him forever. Philippians chapter 2 says your attitude should be like the attitude of Jesus Christ. That even though he was God. He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. But he took on the form of a servant, humbling himself in obedience, even unto death, even unto dying on a cross for your sin and mine. That's what Jesus did for you. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house. There are many mansions, many wonderful dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that incredible? Jesus Christ, God himself, wants to spend eternity with you in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Some of you have dysfunctional relatives you don't want to spend three minutes with. Yet God wants to spend eternity with you in heaven. Isn't that amazing what God has done for you? We could go on and on and on with God's goodness to us. Let me share a little bit about my testimony with you. I was born... And raised in a Christian family. When I was about seven, maybe at the most eight years old, we were in a revival meeting. How many of you have ever been to a revival meeting? All right. About half of you, most of you over 50, okay? I apologize if you're under 50 and you raised your hand, okay? I wasn't looking at you. But we were at a revival meeting. And uh, I really wasn't paying much attention. And my older brother, Steve, he's two and a half years older than me, uh, we were coming home that night, and my parents were super excited about my brother, Steve. And I found out the reason why they were so excited about Steve was because that night he came forward during the invitation time, prayed to receive Christ, and gave his heart to Jesus. I thought to myself, I'd sure like my parents to be that proud of me. So you know what I decided to do? The next night, the next revival meeting, I decided I'm going to come forward and I'm going to give my life to Jesus. My motives were not great, okay? Sure enough, went to church. They had this sermon. Don't remember anything about it. They had the invitation hymn. I don't remember what it was, but I do know this. 
when they sang that song, I was determined, I'm going to get past anybody in this pew that I can, and I'm going to get out in that aisle, and I'm walking down there because I want to give my heart to Jesus. About halfway down, though, there was an aisle about three, maybe six or eight feet wide, actually, a couple pews missing, and I could have made a left turn and went to the bathroom. I thought about it. It's like, no, I'm going to go forward, and I actually did come forward, got down on my knees, and I, somewhere between that pew and the altar, I believe God changed my heart, and I really did give my heart to Jesus Christ. But to be honest, my parents were like, I don't know if he's ready yet, I'm not sure if he knows what he's doing, so they waited, I think wisely, and I was 12 years old, and I was sitting in a service on a Sunday morning, kind of like today, and the preacher was talking about the lost sheep. And I remember thinking, I want to know that I'm not a lost sheep. So when they sang that invitation hymn, I came forward and I got down on my knees and I said to God, I don't know if I'm saved or not, but I don't want to be a lost sheep. I want to be right with God. I want to go to heaven. If he didn't save me when I was seven or eight, I believe he saved me then. But my life never really changed a whole lot. I was baptized. My younger brother and I were actually baptized on the same day. But I never really changed a whole lot. I was a good kid and active in the youth group and well-behaved, you know, most of the time. And by senior year of high school, though, I started reading the Bible through. And God began dealing with my life. And then the summer after I graduated from high school... I felt this great sense of gratitude in my heart one day. I was working a very boring job. How many of you have a really boring job? Don't raise your hand if you work here at the church, okay? <laughs> well, I was working a really boring job at a place then called McDonnell Douglas. Now it's merged with Boeing. And I was putting some cards back in a card catalog file. How many of you old enough to remember card catalog files? All right. We still have those in the library, Rebecca? No. Okay. But I was putting these cards back in a card catalog file, and I remember feeling this great sense of gratitude that since Christ had given his life for me, the least I could do is give my life and return back to Christ. And at that moment, my life changed dramatically. But I did not want to go into vocational ministry because, sure enough, people would say, hey, you must be going into the ministry because you're really dedicated to Jesus. And I want to say, no, we're all supposed to be fully dedicated to Jesus Christ, right? But the point is, God spoke to me about being grateful for who he is. And what he's done. We should be grateful. Amen? Paul continues in verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, why would we want to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit? Why would we want to get rid of things that would contaminate the spirit and, and not participate in those temptations to sin? Why would we want to keep growing in holiness? Well, one reason is gratitude. We just spent some time talking about that. Another reason is for God's glory. If there's no other reason 
to follow Jesus Christ, to honor him, to walk before him with a heart for him, then the glory of God is the greatest reason. There's no greater reason than that. The third reason is for your benefit. You see, following Jesus Christ is not designed in order to take all of your joy away. It's actually an opportunity to experience the joy and the peace and the power and the fulfillment of God in the greatest way possible. How many of you think God knows better about how to live your life than you do? Right? He knows what he's doing. He's never made a mistake. He never says, oops, I shouldn't have done that. He knows everything. And he designed you. The Bible said he knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows everything about you and his purpose for you is to honor him, but also to empower you for living life to the fullest. In John 10.10, Jesus said the thief has come to steal and to kill and destroy. The devil wants to destroy your life. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, have it to the full. The next thing Paul does here is defend himself. Verse 2. He says, make room for us in your hearts, Corinthians. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Why does Paul need to defend himself? Is he on some kind of ego trip? Is it like, I want to be the number one apostle? Is it because he wants to bring honor to himself. No, that's not the reason. The reason why Paul is defending himself is because there were apparently some false teachers in the church at Corinth who were leading the people in Corinth astray, away from the teaching of God's word, teaching them things like legalism that basically said you had to keep all the Jewish laws in order to be a Christian. And something called Gnosticism was likely also in the church which basically said the physical body is evil, but the spiritual is good. And so on one hand, you either deny, deny, deny yourself. You can't have any kind of pleasure with the physical body. Or on the other hand, it's just you just live however you want to live because the physical body is evil anyway. Only the spirit is good. It also led to something called docetism. And docetism says that Jesus Christ could not have come in a physical body. He could not have died on the cross physically. He could not have risen from the grave physically. And so there's heresy there. And Paul's like, I got to combat that heresy. I got to help them know these false teachers are leading them astray. Notice how interested Paul is in these people. Go to verse 3. Paul says, I do not speak to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. As a pastor, I want you to know, I love you guys. I love being the pastor at Northside Baptist Church, okay? I love you. Not just all of you as a group, but individually. I care about you. And I want to get to know you better if I don't know you very well yet. 
I love what I get to do as a pastor, Brother Randall. He's the pastor. I love being able to preach God's word to people. I love being able to go to the hospital and go to the nursing home and go visit people. I love dreaming dreams and and casting a vision for the future of this church. I stay awake at night thinking about all the great things that I believe God is going to do through us for His glory. And I love it. I get paid, Brother Terry, another pastor. I get paid to do what I'd be doing if I wasn't paid to do it anyway. Don't tell the stewardship committee that, okay? (laughs) But one person can only do so much. I can only be one place at one time. But think about it. What if three or four or five hundred of us are all out there reaching out to our community with the love and the truth of Jesus Christ? Think about the difference we can make. What if every single one of you invited five people to church next Sunday? We wouldn't have room for all of them. What if all of us who had the ability would volunteer at least once a quarter, if not every Sunday, to volunteer down in preschool? Michelle at some point would say, I just can't use all these people, Kevin. What if everybody gave generously financially at some point? We say, you know, you need to start giving more to clarity and not to us because we just can't use all this. Now, we're not there yet, okay? And clarity needs help as well, amen? But as we work together, God can do tremendous things through us for his glory. Do you believe that? Paul has a certain amount of frustration with the church at Corinth. But he also believes in them. Go to verse 4. He says, great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. How many of you know it makes all the difference in the world when people believe in you? Turn to the person sitting next to you and say, I believe in you. Now ask them, did you really mean that? (laughs) You see, it's one thing to say that to somebody when you're prompted by the pastor. And another thing to live that way consistently. Letting people that you know People that you love, people that you're in church with, know that you believe in them. Man, if people believe in me, man, it just motivates me, right? But if you constantly get discouragement, you constantly have criticism, you constantly have people who don't like what you're doing, it is deflating, is it not? We need to encourage one another. That doesn't mean that we've arrived, that doesn't mean that we're not That we're perfect, that does not mean that we never have to have a heart-to-heart talk with somebody. But for the most part, man, we believe in one another. We're encouraging one another. And Paul is encouraging this church. As dysfunctional as they may be, he is encouraging them. Paul continues in verse 4. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. 
Now, the Corinthian church may have been the most dysfunctional church in the entire New Testament. Yet Paul is excited about these people. He tells them that they fill him with comfort. And they provide joy for him in the middle of his pain. How can he feel that way about these people? They are dysfunctional. And they fill him with pain. And yet he has great joy when he thinks about them. How can he be that way? Let me ask you a question. How many of you have kids? How many of you ever had teenagers? How many of you ever looked at your teenager and say, Why do you not listen to me? How many of you have grandkids? How many of you love your grandkids? Both hands up. Right? But how many times have you looked at, thought about your grandchildren and say, if you'd only do what I tell you to do, life would be so much better for you. I think Paul is like that with his church. He looks at them. He even says he does like his own children. He loves them. He believes in them. He's encouraged because they have done some repenting. But he's also concerned about them. And his heart has some pain because he wants them to do the right thing. Next, Paul talks about his own personal struggles. And the very fact that the great apostle Paul even had struggles is a comfort to me. How about you? Go to verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. Listen, Paul may have been the greatest follower of Jesus Christ who ever lived. He is very godly, yet he has a heart filled with compassion. He's also one of the most brilliant thinkers on the planet, and he can be bold when he needs to be. But he's also human, and so are you. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are so human. We are, right? Paul is a tremendous man of God. But Paul says, I still struggle. I have conflicts on the outside. I have fears on the inside. There are a lot of people who don't like me, and some of them belong to the church. And there were people outside the church who wanted Paul dead. Eventually they would kill him. Paul had struggles. Turn to your neighbor and say, we all struggle. Paul knew his fair share of struggles. On top of all of his other struggles, he's got what he calls a thorn in the flesh. And we'll get to that at a later sermon because it's found here in this same letter. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. It could have been, many think, a painful eye condition. And he prayed three times for God to take it away, but God did not. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul did not want to hear that. But that's what God told him. Paul had struggles. But he didn't spend the majority of his time dwelling on the struggle. Do you know who, anybody who does? 
They're always complaining about this. They always don't like that. They're always frustrated about her. They're always upset about him. Everywhere they go, they're just not happy. You know anybody who's not happy most of the time? The only thing that's more difficult than somebody who's always complaining about their issues is somebody who's always complaining about your issues. <laughs> Why can't you get your act together? I don't know. I'm trying, okay? Paul's not dwelling on that. Could have. The church of Corinth certainly had their share of issues, and he talks about them, but he's also believing in them. And he's reaching out to them. He's trying to be an instrument of God to, to help them. Paul had all kinds of problems, most of them because he was obedient to Christ. But he's not dwelling on the problem. Sure, Paul's got his struggles. Struggles like most of us will never know. But he's still trusting in God. In verse 5, he says, we were afflicted on every side. We had fears on the inside and conflicts on the outside. Paul did not have an easy life. I doubt that many, if any of you, would want to have trade places with the Apostle Paul. He was constantly in physical danger. He was beaten over and over and over again with rods and or with whips. He was in and out and in and out of jail. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times. Had all these churches to deal with. And he said, that was a great pressure on me as well. And I don't know about you, but I'm not so sure I would have wanted to gone on a mission trip with the Apostle Paul. Dangerous out there, right? Somebody's likely to get hurt. Somebody might get killed. It might be you. And it's not just the being killed that concerns me. It's the painful process involved when you're getting killed, right? But Paul didn't dwell on the struggle. He did not dwell on his personal problems or pain. Yeah, Paul is honest. He's got some struggles. He's got some fears. Here in verse 5, Paul says, I got fears on the inside and conflicts on the outside. But in the very next verse, verse 6, Paul begins with these two simple words. One simple yet powerful phrase. He says, but God. Say it with me. But God. Repeat it. But God. One more time. But God. You may feel like your situation is hopeless, but God says, I'm the God of all hope. You may think your circumstances are impossible, but God says, I'm the God of the impossible. People may call you a loser, but God says, you're more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ you may feel like giving up. You may feel like quitting. You may feel like, I don't want to even come back here again. And I don't want to keep on reaching out in the name of Jesus Christ and following him. It's just not worth it. It's just not working for me. But God says, don't be weary in well-doing. For in due season, in God's time, you reap a harvest if you faint not. But God says, be steadfast, immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
you may feel like everybody in the world has abandoned you. But God says, I'll be with you even to the end of the world. God loves you. He sent Jesus Christ to die for you so that you can have a personal relationship with him that's changing your life. And one day you can go and be with him in heaven forever and ever. Amen? Listen, following Jesus Christ does not mean life is going to be easy. Following Jesus Christ never means, doesn't mean you're never going to have a motorcycle accident, doesn't mind. I wish it did, right? doesn't mean you'll never have a car accident. It doesn't mean you'll never get sick. It doesn't mean you'll never have cancer. It doesn't mean you won't ever be rejected. It doesn't mean you won't ever have pain. It's part of life. But following Jesus Christ does mean this. He'll be with you in the middle of it. And he'll help you have strength. He'll help you have purpose. He'll help you have direction. He'll help you have meaning in your life like this world can never begin to give. And he's conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ, and he's filling you with a joy that the world can never know apart from Christ. And he's one day going to give you a home in heaven that's better than any home can possibly be down here on this earth. The world may say, chunk it all in, give up, don't even try. But God says, follow I want to give you life, abundant life and eternal life for my glory. Verse 6 continues, but God, who comforts the discouraged, the downcast, the downtrodden, this same God, he has comforted us by the coming of Titus. Everyone knows how God uses people, sometimes even unlikely people. That's why church is so important. Listen, you can watch the greatest preachers in the world, perhaps, on television. But they're not going to visit you in the hospital. You can stay home and read the Bible, but there's something about being together with God's people that's different than being alone. That's why Sunday school is so important, because it's an opportunity to rub shoulders with people in a small group like you cannot even do in a worship service and ask questions and get to know one another in relationships. That's why Master Life, this study, can be so helpful for you because you're spending time every day studying God's Word for just six weeks. An intensive six weeks. And then you're meeting with other people to discuss what God's word has to say. And it's life changing. Everything that we do together as a church can be life changing. Even the picnic next Sunday. How many of you knew the picnic was next Sunday? Twelve of you. Okay, I'll see you there. We'll get to know each other, okay? This is an opportunity to build relationships with people you might not get to do on a Sunday morning. We need each other. Titus is apparently not some golden-tongued orator or super apostle or extra charismatic leader, but he is faithful. And he was a tremendous comfort to the apostle Paul. Titus was the kind of friend 
that whenever everyone else walked out, Titus would walk in. Titus was the kind of friend who would stick closer than a brother. Listen, the greatest friend of all is Jesus Christ. Amen? Not only was Titus a a good friend of Paul's, Titus came with good news. The Corinthians had repented. They had turned from their sin. Now, if you read the rest of this letter, you'll see the church still has problems. Apparently, the Corinthian church still has some in the church who have not repented. Paul will get to that in chapters 10 through 13 of this same letter. But it seems the majority in the church had repented. The majority had turned from their sin. And i got to be honest. I don't know all of your issues today, individually. I don't know all of your struggles. I don't know all your problems. I don't know all of your needs. But I know somebody who does. His name is Jesus Christ. And he loves you more than you have the capacity to love. And he's calling you to follow him. With every fiber of your being. He's calling you to grow up and to mature in him. He's calling you to reach out to a world that desperately needs to know Jesus Christ as well and share God's love with them. To look for opportunities to share the gospel with them. To look for people you can invite to worship so they can hear the gospel with us. But he's calling you not to simply be saved and to sit. They to get outside the four walls of this church and serve to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And when you do that and I do that and we do that together, it's incredible what God can do. Amen.